Welcome back to the podcast. Took a little bit of a different turn last week, but I'm super excited to be back into my favorites. Though I have to confess, my favorites are going to be centered in the next couple of weeks around Christmas. And in honor of that, I am recording some of these episodes as I'm looking at my Christmas tree and the snow is falling outside my window. And you also may have noticed that I've been trying different things with sound and different environments. So this is me also trying to see what the sound is like. So welcome to probably the first of four weeks at the Women in Jesus Christmas Story. And we're going to see some short reflections on what we can learn from them. So let's get started. Hello, friends. Welcome to the Online Pastor Podcast, a place for you to discover faith and explore what it means to follow Jesus, experience God, and navigate life as a person of faith. My name is Amanda, and I am your host and Bible mentor, and I am excited to be on this journey with you. So when my siblings and I were little, we were regaled with many stories by my father of a monster called the Grinch. Now at this point, my siblings and I had not ever heard of Dr. Seuss and his stories. And so our image of the Grinch was built around bedtime stories that my dad would tell us of his acquaintance and his description. These stories were further perpetuated by our frequent visits to an old abandoned jail farm and barn close to our home and so we spent many weekends as a family on this property and remember fondly like snowmobiling the winter exploring the summer and usually and what I now know in hindsight probably illegally playing on the property (laughs) so on this property were a barn and a silo and this was according to my dad where the Grinch lived and when we would visit evidence of his existence were pointed out explicitly by my father to us kids So use your imagination as I kind of tell you what we saw. So imagining we're coming into the barn and we see like some leftover cans of food that had either been eaten. And my dad would say this was evidence of the Grinch's like food and diet. And then, you know, likely now I know that was probably squatters or someone leaving food behind. Um, But to a kid, that was like gospel truth, right? Uh, And then there was, if you remember the green and pink insulation, there was that that would like be found lying around the property. And oftentimes my dad would say, oh, the Grinch shed its skin. And then there were these cinder cement blocks. I'm sure you've seen them around. Usually they they can make a foundation of a house or a garage. My dad would say, oh, these are, you know, they're kind of all over the place because we had a, a, a throwing fight. And of course, guess who won? My dad. Um, I don't recall when we found this, but I know I did not have a lot of teeth. So there is picture evidence of me toothless. So I must have been about six or seven holding this jawbone, which I now know as an adult is of a cow. But my dad had said, oh, yeah, the Grinch has died. And that is his jawbone. And I'm so like, if you imagine just me as like a six year old, like toothless, so happy because this character of kind of had haunted my dreams. And I checked under my bed every night for this Grinch was now dead. It was not long after that. I don't remember the exact context, whether I overheard a conversation or I just got told that the Grinch had never been real in the first place. 
And it probably wasn't long after he had, uh, quote unquote, died that the truth came out. He, he was never real and was simply an invention of my father's imagination. What I do remember vividly, though, is stumbling down the stairs and the complete disintegration of my experiences on that farm because I had believed this creature to be real. I'd spent a lot of time hiding and running from something now I knew no longer existed. I had seen what I was told to see, and suddenly I realized that I might have not been told the whole story. My eight-year-old brain, I remember this, my seven or eight-year-old brain just exploded with possibilities because where else might I have been misled? Where else? Little did I expect that some of this same disorientation, and I know this sounds strong, but would actually happen when I started to read the Bible for myself. And I think for, if you have had, I would say, the history of being raised and heard the sort of children's Bible version of things, you can relate. If you are listening and the Bible is new to you and you've just been reading it, I think you might have an advantage because you get a fuller picture of the characters. There are certain parts of the story of the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament, that is edited out for the sake of little ears. And so, for example, I mean, there are so many characters we could talk about, but like, so for example, Noah, I'm sure we've all seen like his ark, you know, in children's stores. And it's like the story about the animals on the ark. But I I didn't realize that Noah also had a little bit of an issue with drunkenness and things like this until I started to read his story, what happened afterward. Or if you think of someone like Samson, who I always was kind of told this man of great strength, I didn't really realize that he had, he would be basically what we would call a womanizer. So I had this sort of growing disorientation and, and I don't think it was intentional on the part of anyone to mislead me. I will say that. I just think that no one probably at any point stopped to sit me down and correct me or fill or color in the full picture of these characters. And so this is also something that I learned when I was looking at Jesus' family tree. I mean, it's Christmas time. We're going to kind of go in that direction. You could probably preach for a year or we could podcast for a year on on the broken characters in the Bible. I think there is something refreshing about their flaws and, and the fact that they're still redeemed by God because it means that I can be invited into God's story. But I think it is so fascinating that I didn't see this happening in Jesus' line. I always think I made the assumption that, you know, the son of God who's going to come in human flesh is going to choose a pretty neat and tidy family line. Like his family tree is not going to have any skeletons. And the reality is there is a number of people. If you're going to read Matthew 1 verses 1 to 17 over the next couple of weeks, I'd encourage you to kind of go look at some of the backstory. We're going to spend time in the next two weeks, this week, part one, and next week, part two, on on a particular character who I'll tell you in a second. But I just want to point out, like, think about Abraham, for example, who's mentioned in Jesus' family line in Matthew. He's, a, he's lauded as a great, you know, father of the faith. But Abraham not only once, but twice lied out of fear and got his wife into some pretty sticky situations. And I mean, then Judah is mentioned, his son by Tamar. I'm not even going to mention that situation. Just go read it. And then we have Rahab. We hear this story in Joshua 2, but she is, we're told flat out she's a prostitute. 
she's invited into Jesus' family line. And then we also get mentioned this person named Ruth. And that is where we're going to land kind of today and next week. I think there are so many things about Ruth that I've learned in my reflection as I went digging about her and understanding her context that I didn't realize it's pretty awesome that she's included in the family of God. What is obvious when you slow down enough to look for it is that God actually uses the most unlikely people to work out his plans and purposes. So then when I think about that story as it, or that statement as it pertains to the characters in the Bible who've just, who we've just mentioned with flaws, why would the ancestry of Jesus be any different when it was his always his plan to include the most unlikely people? What had never occurred to me before, or had been pointed out to me, I would say, was that Jesus' ancestry says more about his future than it's than the past. It's an ironic statement. I'll repeat it. Jesus' ancestry, his family tree, says more about his future than his past. And what if, through his ancestry, he's already proclaiming his redemption plan for including very unexpected people and unlikely people, and that they had some pretty messy situations. So by including Ruth, as we're going to talk about, he is prophesying the good news. And particularly as it pertains to Ruth's story, he is prophesying that people who might be considered the outsiders and the unseen actually are invited to be part of the family of God, but not only that, but become a pivotal character in the story. And it's not just the spiritual family that that outsiders, unexpected or unseen people, but God uses a physical truth, a physical family line to demonstrate, I think, a spiritual truth for the future. Jesus' ancestry and his past is anticipating or foretelling, future telling the good news, the gospel, that the outsiders and the unexpected and the unseen are going to be included in the family of God. I think this is so cool. And I think as we look at Ruth, we're going to spend a a time in really five verses over the next two weeks that they actually do exactly that. They future tell quite a lot about God's redemptive plan. So I'm just going to read those five verses for you and then we'll kind of focus on the first couple and then next week we'll focus on the last um, verses three to five. So Ruth one, uh, one to five. In the days when the judges ruled in Israel, a severe famine came upon the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah left his home and went to live in the country of Moab, taking his wife and two sons with him. The man's name was Elimelech and his wife was Naomi. Their two sons were Mahon and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in the land of Judah. And when they reached Moab, they settled there. Then Elimelech died and Naomi was left with her two sons. The two sons married Moabite women. One married a woman named Orpah and the other woman named Ruth. But about 10 years later, both Mahon and Kilian died. This left Naomi alone without her two sons and her husband. So if I'm really honest, these first five verses, when I have read the book of Ruth, I really just glossed over. I kind of assumed it was like the backdrop for the characters of the story. And so I didn't really fully understand the implications of these verses. And particularly, I'm going to use the word her pedigree or her back story, her back, Ruth's background within the context until I began to study it. 
And so when I discovered, like I, you know, when I was little, I discovered that the Grinch wasn't real and I had to kind of recalibrate what I knew. I did have to go back with this and reevaluate what I thought I knew and consider a re-understanding of what I had seen. And I think we're going to have to do the same here. Because the thing that is critical to realize is that Ruth isn't just any outsider. So it's already a big deal that Jesus, who is foretold to come through the Jewish nation of Israel, we have someone in here who is a non-Israelite, but she is not just any non-Israelite. She is a Moabite. Now, for those of you who need refreshing as to what a Moabite is, their origin is mentioned in Genesis 19. Abraham's nephew, Lot, I'll just tell you, I'll summarize it, and his uh, daughters are fleeing from Sodom and Gomorrah. And if you will recall the story, or I'm just going to briefly tell you, like the angels had come and warned Lot, his wife, and his daughters, and his sons-in-law to leave. His sons-in-law ended up staying behind. As Lot and his wife and his daughters are running um, past out of the city, where the angels have said, don't look back. Lot's wife looked back. She becomes this pillar of salt. And then the husbands and the daughters end up in this small town named Zoar. Now, the daughters are really, really upset for a number of different reasons. I feel like that's an understatement. But at some point, we're not kind of told the in-between. They really, really take matters into their own hands because they are concerned that there is no heir to the family. Who's going to look after them now their husbands are dead? They want sons. It's really important. We'll we'll kind of pull that apart even more so next week. But uh, so they actually get their father drunk and they have a good time with him read between the lines and they become pregnant so then the oldest daughter gives birth to a son and names that son you guessed it moab and he is the father of the nation of moab we might not understand the importance of this unless we go back and look at the origin of the nation of moab and when we do we read that Elimelech and his wife left Bethlehem to find better prospects in Moab. <laughs> we might miss that the, the listeners of this story, you know, imagine the scroll being read in a synagogue or the story being told orally to, the Jew, to Jewish children or even to in a group of adults. We might miss that the listener's lip might just curl a little bit in disgust or a lot they would, their lips would curl because a Moabite history of incest. <laughs> and not only that, but a Limelech choosing to leave the promised land, which Israel had held on to and held for for so long. That's his choice of destination is Moab. If you stop and listen between the lines, you can almost hear this question from the original audience. Really, a Limelech? You're going to flee the promised land and you're going to settle in Moab? Of all places. And it doesn't just stop there. Elimelech's sons then marry Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth. And so, with a history of incest in this nation, and therefore there is a deep seated racism for the Moabites, I think we miss that the ancient listeners or the readers would have written off Ruth for her background, and they would have written off Naomi for the plan that brought her there. She's gonna flee the promised land. And yet, the story doesn't stop there. In fact, it's only getting started. Because not only are these women reviled by their peers and and the listeners of the story, they then receive a prominent place in the story that unfolds. So prominent, in fact, that this is the only book in the 
Old Testament told from a female perspective. You can almost hear the questions like, really? Ask the Jews, really? Why do we have to have the story of Ruth? Why not? Can't we? Why can't we learn more about Eve or Sarah or Rebecca or Miriam or Deborah with all her wisdom? But Ruth, like she's not even one of us. She's a Moabite. And then you want to have Naomi who chose to leave the promised land and allowed her sons to marry Moabite women. Oh, man. Have you ever had a moment, I just have to pause and think about this, where you have felt like an outsider? Have you ever been somewhere that you felt like you didn't fit in? Maybe you weren't dressed like everyone you showed out, showed up and you're like, oh man, they're in a whole other category. Or you felt kind of outside the group, whoever them was. I think this feeling is probably familiar to all of us. Feeling like we don't belong. We are the outsider. I think that is a common human experience at some point in our lives. And I wish I could be honest and say that only happened to me when I was, you know, in elementary or high school. But it's even happened to me as an adult. And not necessarily that people intentionally create that atmosphere. It's just feeling, oh, I don't fit in. I wonder, I wonder if that's the point of including Ruth. That the outsider that not one of us is invited to become part of the family of God. And in case you miss the implications, this is what's going to happen in the future. God's using a physical truth to demonstrate a spiritual one. So I wondered, as I began my research or did my research, if Ruth's inclusion in the genealogy of Jesus is precisely because she is an outsider. Could it be that Ruth is included in the genealogy and the family history of Jesus because she's an outsider? And I actually started to kind of unfold now kind of the Christmas story and ask myself, does this foretell how Jesus is actually going to come? And when you look for it through the Christmas narrative, you actually can see this thread of the outsider so think about it while he's still in the womb okay it was likely we're going to dive into this a bit later it was likely mary's experience of being an outsider pregnant teenager not yet married it was likely her experience to be like the outsider then they are arriving for the census in bethlehem And the fact that they don't have anyone to stay with means they have no family there. And so they're outsiders. They have no family, no friends to stay, no place to sleep. And there isn't any room for them in the inn. And so what's here, what happens here is that I know oftentimes you do believe it's a stable, but I think more scholars lean towards that it's a cave. Jesus is actually born outside in a cave. And then as you think about the narrative that we're told, it was societal outsiders, actually. It was shepherds who were not the most accepted people. I would say that they were considered outsiders. It wasn't a job that a lot of people wanted. It was outsiders who heard the angel singing. That's who they announced it to. And then it was foreign wise men, so outsiders, (laughs) who were invited to witness the miracle of God in flesh through through the star. 
And so it's not the religious leaders or not even the king, not even the priests, the teachers, not the insiders who get first glimpse into this story, this miracle. And then if we fast forward, we just see that Jesus keeps going out after the people who don't belong. Tax collectors for disciples, a formerly demon-possessed woman for a close companion. I'm talking about the other Mary. And then we have this interesting way in which Jesus allows his ministry to go public with the Samaritan woman at the well. Up until that point, everything had been don't tell. And when Jesus starts to engage with her in the middle of the day, even she tries to correct him for his behavior. Remember, she says to him, you are a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? In other words, uh, we don't get along. We're outsiders. I think I certainly at this point and, you know, kind of worked my way through the first couple of verses. I needed to recalibrate my understanding of the Christmas story in light of this deeper, fuller information about Ruth. It seems to me as we think about it and as we're kind of pulling into an end here for this week or kind of taking a pause, that including outsiders and coming at things from the outside, it looks like that was always part of God's plan. And he was already doing it before we even knew that we needed to look for it. So I wonder just as we close for this week. I am super excited to share with you my other aha moment about Ruth's background, but just thinking about her position in the context in which she was as a Moabite. The Lord does not exclude anyone from his work, his plan, and invites them into right into the center of the story. And he leaves them there. It's Ruth's name that is mentioned in Matthew. It's the book of Ruth as a story in the Old Testament. And I just wonder if it is worthwhile reflecting on and asking the Lord, what are you doing with the people that I might not see, that I might write off, or the people that are outside? I think particularly in this season, it is just my heart. I think Christmas... And then Christmas on top of COVID, people are looking for hope more than ever. And I think it is worthwhile asking ourselves and praying over God, who is outside of knowing you? Who might you be already working at, working in, working with to bring inside your kingdom and perhaps unexpectedly playing a pretty critical and prominent place in your kingdom story? I'm so glad that you have taken the time to listen to some of my ponderings around the Christmas story. But if you have been tracking with us for the last couple of weeks or months, I would love to hear from you. I have been trying a bunch of different things. I've recorded in different sessions. I've also tried shorter talks. I've tried longer talks. I have tried interview format. I have tried... Uh, asking questions that I'm getting. And so if you have feedback that you like this format, you don't like other formats, you like a certain length of time, you don't, I would love to hear from you. And particularly if you have discipleship questions or spiritual growth questions or things you're wrestling through, you can also let me know and 
questions will be kept confidential, but if that is something you're like, oh, I wonder if you could address this issue or how would you go about growing in this thing, please drop me a message. I'd love to hear from you.